Welcome to Win the Future, a podcast where we chat with folks who are tackling the most significant challenges our communities face today to make for a better tomorrow. I'm your host, Rep Roaster. This is episode number 14. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Win the Future. I'm your host, Rep Roaster, and today we have a very special guest in Mona Javeri, who is out of Ridgefield and founded an amazing nonprofit called Sound Effects uh, that focuses on cancer research and innovation. And uh, Mona, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Brett, and, and really thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be able to be able to share what, what we're doing at Sound Effects. Oh my God, it's great to have you on. And with with that, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your nonprofit and what the genesis behind it was? Sound Effects is a crowdfunding platform. And just to be really clear, it's a charitable crowdfunding platform for innovators who are working badly needed cancer solutions, but who lack the critical funds to move forward. Um, so there's really no other organization that is taken on our, our model specifically with respect to biotech innovation and with respect to charitably crowdfunding biotech innovation. And then, as our, as our name suggests, Sound Effects, we partner with the music industry to help us raise awareness and to help us raise funds. And the reason why we decided to do this is because way back when I started, it became very clear to me that the general public doesn't know what it was meant by biotech innovation. Because when the war on cancer was launched, say, in, in, Nixon, in the 70s, in 1971 with Nixon... It was understood that research, if we're going to fight the war, we should donate to research for the cure. But that's not what really happens. Researchers don't generate cures. They generate discoveries and they have ideas and novel uh, ways. But, But in order for those ideas to become real medicines, they must advance through what we call the, the pipeline. And the, and the people who do that are, what, are what's called biotech innovators. And so it traverses, the great ideas traverse out of academia and they move into the hands of biotech entrepreneurs who then must raise money and then must advance these ideas into something that's palatable and, and capable uh, to show promise. And, get, and, then, and they, they hand that off oftentimes to pharma and then pharma takes it to market. But this path, this journey, basically, is not known to the public. They think, you know, the, the, the researchers have, have, still haven't found that cure. Um, so it became our job at Sound Effects is to really shine light on who these innovators are, what, what biotechnology is, and why the public can and must get around it if, we're gonna, if we are to see better results in our war on cancer. Um, so that's how. So that's basically what Sound Effects is about. And can you tell us a little bit about your journey to to up to founding Sound Effects and, and your background? I grew up in Westport, and from there, eventually, I uh, went to Wake Forest to get my PhD in biochemistry. While I was in the National Cancer Institute, my lab had discovered a, a novel way to combat ovarian cancer, and. Um, I was fortunate enough to figure out how to get the patent rights to this discovery. 
And so I got the patent rights and then later on, I learned how to spin out a company and try to develop this technology and then try to go out and raise money and write a business plan and um, do all the things that entrepreneurs do um, and uh, and write grants, but, but all in an effort to develop this technology in hopes that it will one day continue and get to market and help people in need. And mind you, ovarian cancer is one of the deadliest cancers for women. In that journey, and when I became what I call a biotech entrepreneur, I started actually going to patient conferences. I wasn't, I wasn't only sort of in my science head, I started to learn what it is that patients need. I learned as a biotech entrepreneur that it would behoove me to figure out how to be in touch with people that are suffering from the disease, be in touch with doctors, see what's really happening, understand what the current marketplace looked like in terms of um, addressing ovarian cancer. And and from there, I sort of really expanded my horizon and understood um, what this disease really is and why it was really hard to tackle. Um, and as, as an entrepreneur, a biotech entrepreneur, I, I really got a firsthand dose of where all the hiccups are in the process, that an innovator like myself, um, why it is just so hard, if not impossible, to take a promising discovery from the lab and then uh, develop it and advance it into something that you know could eventually help people. And I realized that this wasn't just my problem. This was an industry problem. And in fact, in the industry, we have a name for it. We call it the valley of death. It's where all the great ideas go to die because they lack the funds to move forward. I saw the valley of death as a public health crisis. And I formed sound effects as a way to address this crisis. Um, And I created sound effects as an interface where the people could be part of the solution and hence the crowdfunding model. That's fascinating. And in your, um, in your work with going to patient conferences, was there a point at like one particular story that really touched you and showed you this is, I'm, I'm doing the right thing here. This is really my path and my calling. I did attend an ovarian cancer conference. This was in DC. And I was struck by really how knowledgeable the patients were. I couldn't believe that blew me away. They understood clinical trials. They understood what was on the horizon. They understood the um, the milestones that had to be met and FDA processes. And uh, they they were so smart. Um, and that moved me. It moved me because it made me understand that the public you don't need a PhD to to understand the process of innovation and to get behind it. And I, I do remember meeting one one individual in particular who uh, is very sad because because she was like me. She was a mom struck by ovarian cancer. She was young. She's probably in her late forties, and she was out of options. And it, it was just very clear there was nothing more for her. And she had children. And she was a painter. It really. It underscored the burden of cancer, that it was so much more than just someone being sick. It was a burden on the family, burden on the community, burden financially, burden spiritually. And then kind of later in my journey, I started to realize um, cancer has always been looked at as a first world problem, but that's not true. Cancer, certainly in the past 10 years, has skyrocketed 
It's a world problem. That point of uh, differentiation in such a difficult uh, funding environment is, is really interesting. And I find your partnership with the music industry to be one of those points of differentiation. Can you talk a little bit about that? I wouldn't say that from a donor's perspective, aligning music with charity is something new. It's It's been done forever, right? Music and musicians can influence change. They can be, they can shift cultural norms. And we knew that as sound effects. So we, we thought we have to do the very same thing. We need to get musicians that can help redirect thinking around how we fight the war on cancer. And in our case, we want to redirect thinking toward innovation, toward the people that actually have solutions in hand, uh, but, but, but they lack the funding. Whereas previously, or what's currently happening is, um, music is, is, is used to, don't, to, to raise funds for research. And research then goes to, uh, the, the money goes to labs that are in hospitals or in centers or in universities. Um, that then we find get unaccounted for. But what is new is to get artists to be part of our solution because we found emerging artists to be hungry and they want and they cared and many of them ha- had been affected if not directly but indirectly. And so we found sort of an authenticity around emerging artists versus celebrities which were harder to access. So that's how we did it. And then we created challenges much like the ice bucket challenge where they were online. We would um, do these challenges with the artists where the ones that won would get something unique like a performance opportunity or meet a record label, um, something that they wanted and was important to them. And that's how we created this partnership on our platform. What are a couple of the things you've been most um, shocked about or found as the biggest learning experiences transitioning from from the research community to your entrepreneurial endeavors to uh, the nonprofit sphere. Sort of the backdrop of me doing this is also that I'm a mother and that I was having children at the time and I was pregnant. And um, I basically disassociated with um, big in, in corporate groups or big groups. Like I, I was no longer working for the National Cancer Institute. I was on my own. So I had to go into various worlds as a sole person, right? Not backed by anybody. So I would say that that journey in and of itself was fascinating for me, how people responded to me. When I started my company, for example, I was out there writing business plans, pitching and pregnant, which was a sight to see because that's not what people see normally. The whole journey of, of, the, of dancing between being a mom and then pioneering something that was not just difficult, it was like virtually impossible to, you know, to crack this nut, which was so steeped in academia. And academia is an unyielding place. Like, you know, there are the, how innovation goes is largely dependent on the leaders of the field. And the leaders are oftentimes white men. And, 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 and that too, even when I grew up in academia, all my mentors were white white men, almost all of them. And a few were women, but not many. And now this is changing. We have more women professors, more women voices. But I always found that the women were far more, um, more interesting scientists, were more creative scientists. And so that was always exciting to me. And I, I would, I, I always, I want to emulate those, those very women. So I would say maybe the, 
my journey as being sort of a soul person um, would always shock and intrigue me. Even though I'm a, I'm a scientist and a PhD in my own right, I still wasn't credible enough. And so it took me having to get much better at my own game and having to build credibility around me. Um, so while I haven't changed in what I'm fighting for, I've had to strategically place partners and people and support and whatnot so that doors would open. Great. Well, Mona, we're going to take a really quick break and then we will be back for the second part of our interview. When the Future is sponsored in part by Connecticut by the Numbers. If you're looking to learn more about what's happening and why, check out Connecticut by the Numbers, where every number tells a story. Connecticut by the Numbers goes beyond the headlines across the state. For Connecticut news that counts, visit ctnumbers.news or follow them at ctnumbers. All right, we're back with Mona Javari from Sound Effects, who's the founder and director of the nonprofit. Well, it's so it's interesting. Right now, we have um, probably the most startups uh, coming to fruition that we've had in yep. year over year and a decade. Um, and the the unfortunate reality is female entrepreneurs get funded to a far less degree than male entrepreneurs, um, which is incredibly discouraging and, and, and ridiculous. But with that, what, as somebody who's been successful, what advice would you have for um, young entrepreneurs, specifically female entrepreneurs, uh, to, in terms of sticking with it or resilience? Through this time. It's been reported over and over that women uh, raise less money than men uh, in the venture community. You know, um, women struggle far more and people of color struggle far more. It depends also where you live, at least in, in biotech, right? So if you're on East and West Coast, you're far more likely to raise venture capital. And also if you're associated with certain institutions, and that doesn't mean that you have a better idea or that your idea will fly, but it does mean that you can tap um, cash. Um, so as far as what I would say, you know, I think um, just as, as I've been down this journey, you know, I think it takes an extra resilience to, to be somebody who's not square in the sweet spot of investors. It takes building that ecosystem that um, will support you and will provide that, those layers of credibility and um, reduce risk. For women, yes, and for people who have a harder time raising money, you have to put all these key things in place, like you would any entrepreneur. But maybe for a woman or a person of color or a person who lives in Kansas, you just gotta, you gotta pull all the credibility strings more. Um, you gotta stay in the game longer. Um, but you also gotta play the game that once you have the person's attention, some of that, some of those differences are just gonna, they're just gonna disappear. Because at the end of the day, People want a great idea and they want to get behind a great idea. And you got to talk your game um, in, in that it, it, sort of um, pursuing and helping them to get behind that idea. And in that way, I think women are great because I think women can, can really deliver the technology and, and share it in a way that I think is far more digestible or more exciting um, than I think men. Um, and I, I and I see this when I was sort of growing up as a, as a scientist. I would always find the female scientists were so much better at breaking down the science, you know, and making you excited about it. Mona, I just want to ask you briefly about 
you had mentioned going through the patent process in your research and entrepreneurial journey, uh, which is so vital. And I feel like it's something that not a lot of people know enough about and why it's important and how difficult it is to navigate that space. Can you talk a little bit about that? Thank you, Brett, for bringing that up, because that is a, a space that is not familiar um, to many. So essentially, uh, patents are the key asset to any innovation. And without patents, um, nothing moves forward, frankly. Basically, what happens is when you are in a lab or you're an engineer, scientist, whatever, and you invent something, um, it cannot be patented unless it's novel, frankly. It's novel, it hasn't been done before, and it's got a use. And... uh, and so that being said, um, there's a lot of things that get discovered in the lab. And in fact, patents are filed, frankly, a lot of it. And in our all across this country, in our great institutions, we have a lot of patents uh, sitting on shelves and not doing anything um, for better or worse. So and what happens is when you work for an institution or a lab and you are an inventor and you discover something and it's new and the institution agrees to patent it, you don't have rights to that patent in the United States. This is different in Europe. But in the United States, you don't have the right to now go and take it on and build it. You have to be granted the right by the institution. In my case, we filed a patent and and, and it was held by the National Cancer Institute. And I asked them for my patent rights back. So normally, the way it works is when you're an inventor, you actually, you have the right to your patent when you're an inventor. But if you work for an institution, you have to sign off those rights, right? And so it doesn't matter if you're MIT or Yale or whatever, you work for the institution and you invent something, you sign off as an inventor that you are not going to take those patent rights and do something. Um, so, but in my case, I did it different. I asked them for the rights back and they took six months and they finally said, okay, fine. We, as the NCI, we're not going to do anything with this patent so you can have it back. Um, but that's an unusual thing and this doesn't really happen. <laughs> and so normally if you want your rights back, you've got to license it from the institution and you got to pay money for the very thing that you, that you invented. Right. Uh, so, so that's, that's number one. N- number two it's one patent is not enough to make an invention valuable. It's not enough of an asset, right? There's many aspects to an invention. It's, it's the actual structure. So in my case, I had a, a DNA structure and those had to be in, in the patent. It's the use, how are you gonna use it, what cancers, then those are patented. There is how you can administer and then the, the route of administration is patent. So every invention, in fact, as what we call a patent suite. And it's the suite that is protecting all aspects of the, of the innovation. And the thing with patents is that doesn't give you the right to carry it out, but it gives you the right to prevent others from taking your work and carrying it out. Um, so that's the other nuance about patents. It doesn't suddenly give you a right. There might be other reasons for why you can't uh, take this and move it forward. And there's many situations where people do uh, find an innovation that's patented and they still work on it without the rights to do it. And they wait for you to come and sue them or go after them (laughs) and half the time. So you have to stay vigil as a patent owner that others aren't trespassing 
you know, your, your, um, your property, so to speak. So uh, there's that. And then the other thing with patents is that it's not enough that you file a U.S. patent. That only gives you the right in the United States. But what happens when you want to service the rest of the world? Well, then, then, you need, then you need to file the patent in Europe. And you need to file a patent in Canada. You need to file a patent in Japan and China. And now you have a worldwide patent suite. And by the way, patents cost a ton of money. And you got to translate in all the different languages. <laughs> so they cost a ton of money. So if you have spent a million dollars in research, then you have spent a million dollars in patents. Wow, that's fascinating. It's such a crazy, patenting is such a crazy world. Um, but I mean, another crazy world is the, uh, the government uh, role within the, the cancer research and um, medical structure. And with Joe Biden uh, becoming president, and while he was vice president overseeing the moonshot program, which is uh, focused on finding a cure to cancer, and now bringing that forward into his presidency, how do you see that coming into play and in furthering the, the overall effort to to beat back cancer. I am grateful uh, in that way for Joe Biden because he clearly cares about this issue. Um, and he has been somebody uh, through his own foundation that has been instrumental in bringing groups together. And he too, you know, one of the big issues that um, sort of plagues progress or is hinder, hampers progress is um, lack of collaboration, lack of transparency, um, disparate groups working on the same thing and not coming together. So through, through Moonshot, that was their focus, is how do we get all these players to work together? And they were really problems that were not insurmountable. Joe Biden and his group, and he put some really great people in place to bring awareness to, to those breakdowns. Um, and uh, as part of why we aren't seeing the progress we should see and why the patient experience is so poor and why we're not getting patients to participate because they don't like this, the experience. Um, so all of these things were, were really important. And I think he, he uh, uh, leading that effort, came to know about where the holes were, right? So I think that's all in our favor. He didn't focus so much on innovation, but I think with COVID, that has turned the page for us because now the public is focused on innovation. The public understands what vaccines are, what tests are. Um, words like mRNA were never said before. People never said PCR tests. Well, well, science has been doing this for decades. It's just now we're finally our language is in the is is a, is now a public language. And for me, this is just you know this was so unimaginable when I was working, you know, in, in um, at, at the NCI, we couldn't even envision how we would, how things we were doing in the lab were one day going to become real life things. As life has it, we have this pandemic, but we also have Joe Biden. And the two, my hope, it, it will be the, the impetus that um, innovation needs, especially these these innovators that are on the ground and they're in the labs working day and night and slaving, we need a spotlight on them. Um, because I, I will say that the companies that come to me that have an innovation in hand, many of them are working at their own risk. They are, they're mortgaged their houses, they've taken their savings and they're putting it into the company and all at their own risk in hopes that 
this innovation will, will, will raise money and will become something. And nobody knows about it. Um, so I find the journey of the innovator fascinating um, and, and untold, basically. And I think, again, at Sound Effects, we, wanna, we want to place them as the, the, the heroes at the forefront of our cancer battle. How can folks get involved or, or help in, in the effort? What would you recommend in terms of either contacting sound effects to, to donate or to, to help out the effort? We'd be grateful if they could visit our page, uh, soundeffects.org. Um, we're also on social media, um, all, all formats of social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and to follow us and follow what we're doing and what campaigns are are, are um, uh, on the horizon and who's uh, because in fact it's fascinating to see how just the innovation and, and all the great ideas um, that one cannot even imagine that are now you know at the forefront and, and ready for the public to support as they see fit basically. I would say as, a, as somebody who's been leading sound effects, that's probably the most exciting thing is that every idea under the sun is out there. It, it, it just really is. Um, and it's super exciting and it may not work, but you know, we have this saying, you know, you, you, we have to invest in failure if we're going to learn and, and succeed. Uh, so I, I, I say this um, to the folks out there, you know, come to our website, soundeffects.org, check out our campaigns um, and donate because you'll be part of this movement of supporting innovation as an access to fighting the war on cancer. Excellent. Well, Mona, I can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you, Brett. I, I'm so grateful to, to share what we're doing. It's great having you as a guest. Appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for being with us for another episode of Win the Future. Thank you for listening to the Win the Future podcast, sponsored by the strategic communications firm, A Better Campaign. Make sure to visit our website at abettercampaign.com backslash win the future. Please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Thank you for tuning in. Please tune in again next Thursday for another episode of Win the Future.